All right, welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 313. Detroit Linux. And this is Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. And Tom Lawrence. All right, so Detroit Linux. Uh, yeah, well, it's the, so the 313 area code, and it's been turned into kind of like a marketing thing with Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see people saying, I'm repping the 313. There's, uh, it's like this whole, that area code encompasses Detroit. Matter of fact, that's actually one of the reasons I have a 313 area code for my business as opposed to some of the other ones. Even though we're not in Detroit proper, um, being having a 313 area code actually makes you more popular. They think you're part of the Detroit thing. Yeah. And what is and isn't Detroit is one of those um, – arguments that probably happen in a lot of cities like are you in chicago okay i'm in the suburbs of chicago just mm-hmm. outside but we say it's chicago but it becomes like a big deal here in detroit uh we are actually sitting physically in the city of southgate which is only 15 miles south of detroit but yeah you you'll hear some people argue but we collectively like to say we're from detroit we're from the 313 we'll say that when we traveled when we went to the microsoft events and things like that right. so we figure we'll still call it 313 Detroit Linux. Uh, also, show titles are hard. That's one of the more difficult things about the show. <laughs> it's probably the most disgusting topic of every time we – and causes us delays in recording. So sometimes we just end it there. <laughs> There's so many cities around Detroit. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to say, where are you from? Uh, Detroit. Detroit. Oh, yeah. Like, so all these little cities that no one's ever heard of. Let's mm-hmm. say Detroit. Yep. Simple. So it's uh, been a minute. So what's, what have you been up to, Tony? I uh, finally got to work on some stuff. Um, my FreeNAS server, I've got pretty much everything worked out on that, making it get it nice. better. The problem I was having is where if I copied more than like a gig and a half of, of data, then it would just hang up for like an hour. Uh, and so I, so my, my suspicion was that it was the, hard, the motherboard had gone bad. So then I actually moved it back to uh, a, just a whole different system. It's a it's a Dell um, Precision Tower, and moving it over there, then it's still dual processor, the hex cores, and uh, instead of twenty four gigs RAM, I have thirty six gigs RAM now. Oh, nice! And just by moving it over to that, uh, so I made like five changes, and each change I did a little <laughs> bit of testing to see what what change made what, and so moving it to that system. I was able to to copy over four gigs of data before it started hanging up, and then I implemented the um, cache drives. Oh, okay. Which everything I read, they said it's not going to help at all. Like anything you, you do with that, it's not going to help. And L two Arc, or did you put in a Zill? Uh, I used the GUI and call it a cache drive. Okay, that's the L two Arc one. Yeah. So yeah, and so everybody's saying, "No, yeah, it's not going to help." It's you know, all the web form stuff I've read, but I can now copy eight gigs of data without having issues. Interesting. <clears throat> and that's like the normal thing. The only thing I'm going to put through more than eight gigs at one time is if it, I'm like ripping movies, and I'm not going to be doing that. So. Well, you know, it, and it, maybe you did actually add it as a Zill. So there's two pieces to the free NAS. There's a good write up if you type uh, Zill versus L2 Arc. L2 Arc is a read cache that says, I'm going to take things that are frequently requested and throw them on an SSD. Normally, if you're using mm-hmm. an SSD, or uh, you can do it with other faster mediums. Like, they make a PCIe, like, all flash array one. Um, you can do that with it. But the Zill is an interesting feature of ZFS, and it's the uh, zero intention log. 
short, I could be wrong about the first letter. Mm. <laughs> intention log, I know it says that. Basically, maybe it's, it's CFS intention log. Maybe that's what it is. And it's the log, it's, it's a way for it to get all those tiny little writes and put them somewhere fast to lay out the file system. It's kind of neat. Michael Lucas explains it way better in his book mm -hmm. um, than I just did. Uh, but either way, it's basically picture um, the data going one place, but the file system redundancies that ZFS has are being held until it has time to write them. And it makes a substantial difference in write speeds because it allows the data streams to be streamed, but then the file systems to be uh, the more complicated layers because it's a copy on write file system, which means after it writes the data, it has to update the table. So there's a there's a little bit of juggling going on. If you have you can put a you can gain massive amounts of speed by putting a Zill drive in, especially for things like NFS writes uh, or writes with iSCSI or writes that have to do with uh, lots of small writes from uh, using it as a VM storage for your virtual machines backend. Zill can make a big difference in performance. Hmm. So spell that. Is it Z I L? Z I L. Okay. Yep. Mm. So I use the web GUI to set that up, but even if I do the zpool status, it still just calls it a cache. Okay, then I, that does so sound I like know. it's a uh, a standard caching drive, which still helps too. So, yeah. and I used a pair of uh, SSDs. Okay. Uh, Two fifty gig ones, and they're so cheap now. So the one yeah. gig ones are under a hundred dollars, oh. which is just. It's actually the old ones, my old ones I had, and I've replaced. I like for my laptop. I pulled it on my laptop and put a, a terabyte in my laptop. Mm. So I agree. Yeah, the prices have come down. I'm like, yeah. well, I just want a bigger one in my laptop. Well, and, and when you're building uh, systems, building in a ZFS with a, uh, what do you call it, NVMe drive is becoming popular because then you can use that as your cache. And NVMe drives are just sub in every oh, way yeah. substantially faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for caching things, it becomes a really, you know, fast way to get things done. Cool. Um, I'm glad to hear it's working. That was that was a... Over time, it was a lot of issues you had with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we finally got back to uh, everything working right, um, and then I am uh, I'm going to be teaching a class this fall. Oh, uh, so the really? last couple, yeah, last year, and I didn't teach anything, and so they finally came back to me. You know, we need somebody to teach that networking one class again. So oh, cool. So I'll be teaching that. Where was uh, this? At Eastern Michigan University. Wow. That's one thing. When you when you take the time to teach something, you just have to go so much more in depth. It's it's like that for me and Jay creating, you know, Jay created the book and creating YouTube videos and everything else. And Tony being a teacher, it, there's it's a challenge. It's Oh, uh, yeah. You think you know something, but then when you have to yes. reliably explain it back to somebody. Or you have students then, that poke at you about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can make you nervous. Or YouTube audiences that will find every detail. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they do. They do. The comment section has actually not been bad. People, I've heard people complain about it, but I, I haven't. I don't find the comment section in YouTube, at least regarding my videos, bad or toxic. Um, but boy, they will hang on a detail. <laughs> yeah. They really uh, will. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what I've been doing. Uh, how about you, Jay? So I, I'm still down a couple of rabbit holes. Uh, mm. Two of the probably same ones since last time. Um, one is a power bill. Trying to really figure out. Why it's so much? Why it's so much? It it's like went from, I don't know, like hundred eighty, two hundred dollars to like three hundred fifty. Wow. When I moved, um, so I mean it's it's natural to blame the server rack because it's running all the time. It's the loudest thing that's running all the time inside the house. So it's just I was like, okay, how much is this thing using? So I put a kilowatt meter on it, five hundred watt continuously is what it's pulling. So I go online trying to find an algorithm 
some kind of equation I can use, you know, put in your electric cost and all these things. And it, I, I found so many different equations in Reddit. Like no, mm. no two people yeah. seem to agree on the right way to calculate that. So I, I, I think I finally figured it out and calculated it. And the power company charges more over the summer than if you go over a certain number of kilowatt hours than they do over the, over the winter. So what I calculated is that if I was running it 24-7, it would be somewhere around $46 a month to run it 24-7. And that's what the penalty rate, if it's the lower rate, is going to be like 35 or something like that. Okay. Which isn't too much. I mean, I, I, that's okay. But I, you know, I basically, about over a month ago, set them to shut down at night. I'm not awake. I'm the only one using them, so I just shut them down. And I have a, have a Wake on Land script that I did with the Raspberry Pi. Uh, it took me a minute to get that working, but basically this Raspberry Pi on the server rack will turn the servers on for me oh, at nice. the right time. So by the time I'm waking up getting coffee, I hear, like, the servers just fire up in the background. Mm-hmm. I had to get the timing right because, you know, you got to have FreeNAS first. Yeah. And give that time enough to start up before you start the virtualization servers, which are relying on that for the storage. And those have to come up, um, and this is somewhat of a race condition. Long story made short, it took a little bit of a work, but it's it saved. But here's the funny thing. It saved $50 a month, <laughs> which is more than they should cost running 24-7. So, so the Raspberry Pi paid for itself the first month. <laughs> I think that's what you just said. It pretty much did, but I don't know, now that I think about it, I don't know how much of that $50 savings is from that or just the weather getting cooler, the AC not being on. And some other changes I made around the house, too. So it, it could be a small fraction of that as servers. I have a bigger problem is what I think it is. I don't think the server's a problem. I think they're, you know, $30, $40 of the problem. They're not, you know, the $100 difference problem. It's probably an AC leak or some kind of thing that I'm dealing with. You, you know, DTE has this app that you're supposed to be able to put it close, put your phone close. I don't know how this works, but mm. put your phone close to the power source and it will tell you how much power, how much it's going to cost you. That's I have seen. Well, I've seen yeah, other ones yeah. with hardware that can do that. Well, there's smart plugs that that, but... that have that built in. Like you put your energy yeah. rate, and they will literally tell you how much money you're spending from this outlet. Problem is, they have a limit in the number of amps that you can put through it. So right. a server rack is going to be leaps and bounds beyond that. So I was kind of looking to see if maybe Kilowatt made a, another one that had that feature built in. I didn't see it, mm. but I can use a smart plug on pretty much any other outlet because no other outlet is going to be pulling as much electricity as the server rack is. So I could probably do that, and they're relatively cheap, and it'll give me a big view of what's going on. I have a feeling, though, it's probably going to be the AC. You can also look at some of the PDU units. They'll tell you that kind of information as well. The um, power distribution units, if you look, you can find those even on Amazon or you use on eBay. Uh, Some of those do have wattage options because they usually are a network plug on them or a serial port on them, so you can dig into it and they have a lot of uh, information i have one that i stopped using you can borrow it if you want um oh, it's, I... Uh, I stopped using it because it, it for some reason the last two times i went to that i had power outage and it came up it took like 20 minutes just for it to boot before it would start powering everything else was it always like that or did it just at some point just no kind of start... i don't know something recently happened to it and so maybe I you just give need me the model reset number. The... I can probably buy one if it's if it's cheap. I'll just run on yeah. eBay. Yes, yeah. I've been thinking well, about building that way one for I don't the have studio, to dismantle it. Um, so yeah. I can just like right now when we do the uh, podcast recording because given the visual, I have a lot of lights and everything's plugged into one single switch that turns everything in my studio on. The 
problem is we're recording a podcast and you're not looking at us and the lights are hot. So we turn all the lights off on individual switches. Eventually I want to be able to have like a combo, like a script. Start mm-hmm. studio for podcast, start studio for... <laughs> I'm actually at the point now where I'm going to try to see what would it... I'm kind of like writing this down. Like what would it look like to replace... And I know I talked about this last time. Replace the server rack with mostly Raspberry Pis. Because Raspberry yeah. Pi 4 is awesome. I have three of them now. So yeah. I'm kind of playing around with those. <laughs> and kind of seeing, okay, what, what servers do I really need running all the time? What, what, what don't I need? Because there's some virtual desktop servers I kind of would like to run all the time. Maybe yeah. one or two. Um, so I'm kind of looking into that. The other rabbit hole is YouTube. Because um, I'm, I am really trying to get the audio and video quality in my home office to look and sound great. But it doesn't. At least not in my opinion. Other people have told me, well, it's fine. No, it's, it's not fine. It's not mm. what I want. Working out all the details is hard. It is. So I bought um, the Canon Vixia phone, or not phone, but the camcorder. The same one you have is the yep. overhead cam here. And you, you mentioned this, but I don't know why I just didn't listen to you. But you told me something about, I think, low light. It looks really grainy and, and yeah. hard. Yeah. So there's just not enough light in, in my office to really make that look decent. So Did you want a softbox? Yeah, I actually I have one. bought some lights, okay. so I don't know. They're probably at the house now, but oh. I haven't had a chance to check. Thanks, check. Amazon. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> cheaper ones, 100 and something dollars, so I can still use it, probably. Um, but then I, I go to my normal DSLR that I use for point-and-shoot, and I said, okay, what is this going to look like in here? So I put it on the on the tripod. It looks so much better than the camcorder does. I know I can't leave it running all the time, and that's... Yeah why I did that because I wanted a dedicated camera but it looks so much better like even in low light everything looks crisp and is just popping it looks amazing so I don't know what direction I want to go with this quite yet but I have the using the same microphone as you what do you have in your office the model oh Blue Yeti yes that yeah. so I have that on a boom stand and it works great it, it works okay if I have it like right near my face yes. like in the frame it sounds perfect, but if I try to move it up above the camera line... But leave it in frame. That's what I do. But then the camera focuses on that. Even with oh. face detection, then it, I look blurry. So I try. that's why I get it out of the frame. Oh. And then I hear an echo. So it's all these little tiny things yeah. that just drive me nuts. Yeah, uh, I'm going to get it right. Um, it takes time. It takes time in getting the right equipment and all the right stuff going for it. And speaking of which, I actually reviewed the gazelle the new one from system 76 it's not uploaded yet the video is done it's edited i just have to actually upload it very cool it'll be uploaded soon and it's very much like the oryx pro in fact pretty much exactly the same except it's an inch smaller so i don't understand why they call it the gazelle because the oryx pro is available in, in 16 or 17 inch and this is exactly it looks exactly the same but it's 15 now that one difference one difference is it has gt gt GTX video cards, and, and uh, Oryx Pro has RTX. Okay. So that could be maybe the yeah. determining factor there. But when I was playing Doom on it, it had over 100 frames per second with everything on Ultra. It was great. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. So I had a lot of fun with that. Um, there's probably a lot more. That's all I can remember off the top of my head. Hmm, cool. Uh, so I finally bit the bullet and did it. Ryzen 3900X. And oh, built myself nice. a new uh, video editing system with it. I am super happy with it. 
I have had no issues with the exception of something that if Jay has time, if not, I'm probably just going to reload it. I just got to figure out how to expand because I also moved to MVME with the board and I just cloned it uh, from my SSD, uh, which was a 250 to the NVME, which was a 512. Um, I have a whole video detailing out the parts in the build, but uh, one of the nice things about Linux, it's in, in Windows 10 has finally come along to uh, do this as well. You can just clone to another drive and everything just boots. Like I don't have to deal with setting the computer back up. So the move of the hardware took, you know, takes like maybe an hour and a half to pull all the guts out of the computer and put the new guts in. Um, and we first booted it with the SSD. Then we just said, okay, booted, clone, and moved to NVMe, and it works perfectly fine. No. So Windows 10 doesn't blue screen anymore when you move drives? They've gotten better about it. It just prompts you for those, uh, it'll prompt you for reactivation. So there's still that problem because it'll lose the license sometimes. Oh, I used to always have to sysprep it first used before to. doing that. Yes, yeah. yes. They've gotten better at it. You can actually swap hardware. It works many, many more times than it did before. But hmm. So, yeah, I did that. Uh, it it works well. I've also upgraded some systems to XCP and G version 8, which has got some new fancy features, um, including a whole virtualized uh, backend networking. So you can create virtual networks between servers, and it's all natively built into their Zen Orchestra program. So that's going to be kind of cool. We talked about a few weeks ago, but they've really stepped up all the features they're adding to it. They're killing it. Yeah, they, the project is, I, people, Man. you know, people say, what's well, a new project? Is it ready for prime time? I said, it's not a new project. It's a replacement for Citrix Zen server uh, because they went a different direction over at Citrix. So it is already in everyone. And the fact that it will install over the top of Citrix and all your VMs and settings come with it means it's kind of a no-brainer to swap. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I think it probably single-handedly is destroying the Citrix market like that they had. Of course, Citrus, Citrus in there, we are a security company and we sell security products, so we didn't realize someone had infiltrated our network and uh, exfiltrated all the data for, what, over a year? Someone hacked their network and was inside. Wow. I think that alone is uh, really, that's a bit, there's your one-two punch. First, we changed the deal. We decided to start charging license fees for things we didn't, and we called it an upgrade. That's when everyone got mad at Citrix, and that's what kicked off the project. Uh, if you went and loaded an update to your Citrix server... Your license changed with the update. Your features got locked out, and you had to pay even more license fees. And you're like, wow. wait a minute, can I roll back? No, once you've upgraded, you can't roll back. You have to reload. <laughs> they are like the LibreOffice of virtualization, how they take this product, and there's, you know, something happens, and they fork it. And then the forked version just becomes so much better than the original that nobody yes. wants to use the original anymore. And that's exactly what it is. And like that's what they them. did there because Citrix was like basically features that you got before for free. They decided you can't have any more for free. That was a paid feature, blah, blah, blah. So those little bugs have been uh, worked out by going to XCPNG. And it's it's going really, really well for people. The forums are huge on it. So and I, I'm big on it for a product. I'm also rocked out a few videos. Uh, Tony seen me breaking it down when he walked in on uh, PF Sense and how VLANs work and stuff like that. Because I'm, I'm a big fan of the SG1100, but on the back end physical layer, it is a router on a stick config. What that means is they took one physical network and divided it to make three physical networks and one physical chip, I should say, to three logical one gig network ports. But that means there's an extra step. Now, I wish PFSense would script it um, when they write it so you don't have to do this extra step when you create VLANs of tagging that back-end ship port in there. Uh, but they didn't, and they only have one hour-long video. So I made a video that's about, I don't know, I haven't edited it yet, but probably 10 minutes long to explain VLAN. So way shorter explainer. It's just a couple extra things you have to check boxes. It's not hard. It's just if you didn't know to check those two boxes and you followed any, any other PFSense VLAN video, you're going to end up 
in the forums like everybody else, and there's a ton of forum posts about it. Why mm-hmm. do I have to tag you know member zero? What is member zero? Why? What is this mystery? Because the ports are one, two, and three. What's the zero port? Well, it doesn't physically exist. It's a backend. But I like diving into some of that and. This is something in enterprise networking, uh, router on a stick. I believe Cisco supports it. I've seen Cisco setups with it, older ones, but it's uh, it's not uncommon to set things up like that. It's not unheard of, I should say. Mm-hmm. But yeah. making sure people understand how to get it done, that's important. Um, I'm training than... my staff on PFSense right now because we actually do use it, so I might just have them watch those videos. Yeah. That would probably be the and best thing. It's, uh, one of the reasons I... I I want to make sure it's clear because people always ask me which router do you recommend, and one of the reasons I recommend PFSense is anytime someone wants to do all these fancy advanced things, um, we even did a failover video uh, because we just, well, my next uh, call today is finalizing it. We did two different HA setups, very high-end equipment. Well, yes, PFSense supports HA on very high-end equipment, but then the question comes up, well, will it work on cheap equipment? Yes, it will. You can even buy a pair of SG1100s, which are 169 each, and do failover on them. It's a feature of the product, and it's fully open source. I didn't realize this. Um, a couple companies, even open source ones, and I believe the free PBX distribution does this, if you want to do an HA setup, it's a license fee because they only have a closed source add-on that you can do to get some of these things to work. Um, hmm. PFSense is 100% open source top to bottom, so there is no license fee. It will work on home-built hardware, inexpensive hardware, or high-end hardware. So we did a series of videos on that to make it fun. It's good, too, because um, for $169 each, you can buy two of these and learn how to do the same HA setup you would do in an enterprise environment. So it's uh, I think it makes an affordable lab for people wanting to get into the enterprise stuff, start working on the concepts, start putting it together. You can buy a few of these things, and it's less than a college course. <laughs> just, nice. just one yeah. college course. <laughs> yeah, one college course. Yeah, that's, I, I really encourage. That's why I love all this open source stuff. I think it gives people access to really start learning. Um, and we've seen some brilliant people that pick this up at a young age that become these. You, you'll, you'll cite any brilliant hacker or young. How did you learn all this? You're too young to even go to college. He's like, well, I downloaded Linux. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my life was changed forever. I had access to all these things, and I started learning. Mm-hmm. And I encourage more and more people to get involved in it. You know, There's so many good resources out there and uh, just a few pieces of affordable hardware, especially used commodity hardware, uh, you can really get into it. So uh, that's a big thing I encourage all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was it for me. Oh, and, and the usual, I did go do some non-techie things. I went to a car cruise, which there's no logical reason I should watch people just spin tires and do burnouts. <laughs> but I don't know why I smile thinking about it. It's like there's everything about me says that seems like just a waste of every resource we can have. So, was that the Woodward cruise? Yes. Yeah. World's largest uh, car cruise is in Woodward. It's the Woodward Dream Cruise. Uh, happens annually here. It's attached to Detroit. It's not in Detroit proper. Matter of fact, almost none of the so they call it like a Detroit car cruise, but it's not really much going on in Detroit. Mm. <laughs> it's still that's fun. That's when my dad has a high rod, uh, but it's laid up because it has uh, brake problems. I've, and for the past twenty years, or no, how long have I lived here? Fifteen years or so. I've been trying to get him to get it fixed and try to get over there to help him so he can just come over and do this cruise. And yeah, but hasn't happened yet. 
The um, Tesla did autopilot fine in the cruise, which is awesome because mm-hmm. you can just turn a car on autopilot. It stopped because the Dream Cruise is just a bunch of stop traffic. It's re- reality is it's not much of a cruise. You cruise at about four mile an hour, then you stop for like ten minutes, and then you go about four mile an hour to the next stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but the autopilot makes that really easy because it just follows and stops with, automatically with the cars. Mm-hmm. So you can like look around, talk to people, reach out the window, high five people. It was kind of fun. That's and cool. So it was it was novel. Me as well, if you can. This sounds fun. Mm-hmm. So everybody else driving down the cruise tries to get their car loud so it sounds cool, and yours is the silent car. Completely silent. There's just no sound, no nothing. Um, it's also just kind of neat because there's no worries about overheating in the cruise because it was a little hot that day. Um, Teslas don't have to deal with the heat in the same way, so there's not mm-hmm. like an engine running that could overheat. So, And we did see cars overheat. One guy uh, next to us actually popped his radiator blue, steam everywhere, oh, and he's no. trying to get it out of the cruise, and people are trying to push it off the road. And just yeah. Like... <laughs> guy I used to work with, he has an AMX. He would drive it down there every year. And he says uh, last year was the first time he drove it in a long time that it didn't break down. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's a problem. All right, so back to the program here. Do we have any listener feedback? Listener feedback. Um, Uh, We're trying to set up an interview for Ohio Linux Fest. Uh, We are... uh, So Ohio Linux Fest is coming up this fall. It's uh, October 26th. Uh, and the staff there wants to come back on a show. Uh, so last year, I think it was the week or two weeks before Ohio Linux Fest, uh, I did an interview with them. And this year we're trying to be a little proactive and do it more than two weeks ahead. Oh, and kind of related to that, I don't think I'm going to be able to go to Ohio Linux Fest now. I'm working out the details, but it looks like it falls on the same time I'm going to another event that a vendor is sending me to. Oh. So I will confirm that shortly. I'm trying to go myself. Hopefully I'll be able to. I'm pretty sure I'll be able to. I plan on going. If there's anybody else planning on going, um, I hope we can uh, meet up and uh, or whatever. You know, it'd be fun. I'll bring Wait, the recording the equipment. On? It's uh, October 26th. Oh, okay. So it's, uh, it's always a Saturday. That uh, actually Friday, may work. Saturday then that may work out because um, I'm going, the event I'm going to falls on Halloween. I just know, I just don't know the, the weekend after or yeah so it's the weekend, the week it's the weekend after because it's like a thursday friday event i, mm-hmm. I thought it, i thought the fridays would coincide with the ohio linux Fest, so it looks like i'll just have something to do both weekends hey all right so now it's back on <laughs> cool <laughs> all right uh what else did we see now there is someone had a question about dpi uh and pf sense so I'm finding that email. Um, basically, uh, Matt had an email say, Tom, if you use PSNs for your monthly managed networks, how do you do DPI and data metrics on the network? Um, we mostly have no one asking about that. Um, what they're asking is, you know, what's a good way to do it? Like the USG with, USG with the Unify has that. Uh, if you deploy these, uh, what's your standard practice for network utilization? Uh, you know, I, I don't know, and you tell me, Tony, I mean, you watch data like that. But from a small businesses that we support, zero people go, I really need a good DPI breakdown for my data. I need to know how much data my company is. No one cares when it comes to the business networks. Unless mm-hmm. you're doing it for management purposes, and I can look at stats on, on there and say, this is how much data you're using. Uh, you guys need to buy more 
you know, not really buy more data, but buy a larger pipe because you just have too many people doing something. Um, and on occasion, we've run into businesses. The troubleshooting we had to do was just too many people were watching Netflix in the office. That's a thing. Yeah. Um, and we're like, because they said, why is our internet slow? Well, you have like a list of computers watching Netflix. Um, yeah, that's only the reason I could think of small business or home users would want that kind of analytics is if they're uh, looking to why is something running slow. And I have know? found them inaccurate. Um, they're not The DPI is a cat and mouse game. If we know the IP blocks, they can see it, but because so much of the traffic's encrypted, uh, they're doing a lot of DPI based on, I don't know, it goes to this block of IPs owned by Netflix. That's mm-hmm. So DPI is right. very tricky to do. Um, or if it's in the cloud, it's all registered to Google or it's all registered to Amazon. Or... Exactly what creates that many mm-hmm. more problems. Um, so I haven't found any DPI that's really accurate. There is a plugin for PFSense that gives you some DPI yep. data. And top and G. Yeah. And yep. And yep. I've got that running and uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it does some, but it still misses a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and be, like I said, back to so much of this stuff being encrypted, it's kind of a pain in the butt to try to find uh, the DPI data. So people, uh, it is like, I, I will admit, and you were, Matt, you're among the many, many people who ask this question constantly. Um, it's probably my number one question that I am puzzled by. And I think it's got to be people who don't work in the market. Like I just haven't, even yeah. when I worked in corporate of course, this is years ago. It's just not the conversation that we're having with people when we put firewalls in. The other thing you do is you, uh, when you put a firewall in and you write the rules, you turn on logging on all your rules. Mm-hmm. Then you can see what it's doing and you can, gain some idea of what's happening through yeah. those rules. So if if you have a more granular saying, you know, specific people can go to specific websites or, or yeah, if you're going, IP ranges or whatever, then you can start tracking how many is going that way or what kind of and we also um, any managed client, any client that goes, okay, we care a lot about everything top to bottom, we're loading a our solar winds tools on every workstation in there. Uh, that being said, that means we know what websites we went to. We have granular control to block mm-hmm. websites and create policies on every individual computer. Um, so and that also gives us the granular information instead of trying to track it out back through the firewall, looking at the IP address, all right, this was assigned to this laptop. Um, and, and when it comes to the guest network, because I know no one, if you don't want to install a certificate, you're going to be back to invisible again. But no one really asks, where is my guest going? I noticed right. that everyone's talking about the new Cisco DNA system that gives you better tracking of that. Someone actually pointed out, they're like, well, Cisco has DNA. You know, that's why you can't use Unify or PFSense. They're not really commercial. Then I looked into the pricing, and there was a good Cisco discussion on Reddit. Basically, the DNA pricing starts at $100,000 a year yeah. and goes wow. up. So small businesses are not buying $100,000 a year licenses and DNA mm-hmm. servers from Cisco to give detailed DPI analytics. You know, DNA, and it was named, it was uh, the same thing as what was, used to be called something else, has been out for quite a while, like yeah. almost 10 years. But you should look at how many businesses are using that, even large enterprises. Almost nobody. Now, I, I know of three people that, there are three enterprises that do it, and nobody else does because it's a pain in the. It's super difficult. Cisco wants to propose it like magic, but this discussion inside of uh, one of the sysadmin reddits were like, if they wouldn't have spiffed it to us and gave us a free copy basically for the first year, we wouldn't have it at all. And it's, by the way, still not completely configured because we can't really find, we took all this time and hours and we can't really find any insights that anyone in management cares about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like no one, no one's asking us the questions that it answers. So, uh, I don't think DPI is as big of, 
it's not where we trace things down. Quality of service is a big thing. We're going to track down in a firewall, for example, to figure out phone jitter and stuff like that. So we're going to do being ping tests and bandwidth tests. Um, but the actual DPI data where people go, that's a separate. We actually, I jokingly call it the surf report. We're doing that through our solar winds and watching where employees go. But that's usually a reactionary thing. They're, um, they, you know, you filter people. You don't want them going on naughty sites. Uh, but the bigger concern in most businesses isn't those. It's job sites. They don't want people looking for a job while they're at their job. That is like the number one thing we get blocked. Mm. Block LinkedIn, really? blocked. Oh, yeah, that that on the other hand, because the job market's hot. People are job hopping because the unemployment's low, so there's a lot of opportunities. So um, sometimes they spend time at work looking for opportunities. <laughs> it's, it happens a lot. That's, that's where do you want hmm. the blocking. They have us wow. block LinkedIn and all the other hiring sites. Hmm. And it's a category like of block job finding sites wow. <laughs> and our filtering. So hopefully that answers your DPI question, but um, the NTOP, NTOP PNG is a, is a plugin you can load. And I think that's the only other feedback. That's all I see. You guys see anything else? Mm-mm. You know, one other thing, I mean, if, if they're looking to put a little bit of work into it, um, is uh, flow data. Like, if... if oh, uh, yeah. I don't know what kind of equipment that person is asking about, uh, but... So if you have something that's actually, I think PFSense will do it, right? Yeah. It, it exports flow. Yep. Uh, which so it's a lot of this. It's the same data, but then you can send that into uh, an Elk stack. Yes. And then Elk, you can go through um, and I thought it would do analytics on, it, on that. But it is pretty complicated. But PFSense does support a full export of all that data. Mm-hmm. So that is a they just didn't want to. They they it's cool that they have NTOP PNG in here, which is okay. Um, but they do have this whole, hey, dump it somewhere else. This at some point goes beyond the firewall. And if you look into a very large commercial organization, the firewall is simply pushing data. It's not done within the firewall as one kit usually when you die. Even a Cisco DNA, it's a oh, separate yeah. box that the Cisco's are dumping to the DNA server. So, mm-hmm. um, and not to mention when we run things like Security Onion, if you tie that in with your PFSense to help push the data over, that's why Security Onion runs as a separate stack as well, is to really dive deep into analytics. It's very CPU intensive to try to sort out. There's a lot of packets. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. All right. Moving on. Moving on to the hot distros, right? Yes. You know what's going to be in the distro list here that's going to be fun is, is it in here? I know because they made an announcement. Oh, it's not. It's, it's just a timing thing. Uh, Nopix, they have a new release. Mm. I have that in the show notes. Um, the, the the distro that started the live CD revolution, yeah. Nopix. Um, to anyone who's been in Linux for a long time, that name is like, you know, that's a... Haven't haven't heard that name in a long, long time. No, I, I was so enamored is, by that when I yeah, first used here. it. Oh, is it? Um, eight eighteen, uh, Nopix eight point six. Oh, yeah. They're, they're running GNOME three dot three. Yep. So really? they, wait, GNOME three three, or GNOME three thirty? Um, the, oh, there's options. There's uh, LXDE or KDE Plasma or GNOME three dot three zero. Okay. Yeah, so oh, it's been around yeah. for a long time. It's cool to see that they're still... I worked for a company that used it as their kiosks for the lunchroom for people to browse the internet. Mm-hmm. It was, that was a, one of the real popular solutions for it was that, so I thought that was really cool. So that's... Um, I think I downloaded the last version, or one the one time I downloaded it, I used it, and then I think that next year 
yeah, Ubuntu and everybody started using doing the live CD thing, and so I just never used it again. Yeah, everyone. It was revolutionary at the time. It was it really fascinating was. when it came out. So that it was like you can run this live, and it's featured. It's not just like some basics, mm-hmm. uh, which is now you know even uh, back to like XCPNG with their eight point over. One of the things they do is uh, they create a live version, essentially to some extent, the way the installer works. The installer runs the same kernel now. That way, without you have to shut down your server, boot it up off the installer. If your server doesn't like the installer, it also means it won't like it installed because it's running the same kernel. So it's also kind of a sanity check of did everything show up? Did it boot? Yeah. If it doesn't boot, now you can start your troubleshooting process before you loaded it again with the new version. So it's kind of cool the way they do that. Nopix is the same thing. So you could see if your computer ran Linux with Nopix, and then you would install Nopix. Going, it does work with all these things. Cool. Bye bye Windows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like that's how I did it. I think Nopix was like, man, I put it on so many old computers back in the day. I think that might be the very first non-Red Hat distro I ever used, actually. Yeah. Pretty sure, because I remember apt and then, because they had all those commands, sudo, which isn't specific to that, but it was the first time I saw it. Yeah, a lot of memory. You know, it's interesting. It has uh, its own custom init. Did you guys know that? It's called uh, Nopix Autoconfig. Yep. So it doesn't have in it V or uh, System D. Yeah, they run their own. uh, Back then they had to to make things work right. There was all kinds of, I mean, I remember reading about it. I'm like, this person's a genius. Like they they did some real research to make this work. And that's the beauty of open source. Once they did it, everyone else seen it to go, wow, that's cool. And then there was many other just shows based on that. So does Mm -hmm. that mean that they recompile a lot of the packages to use their init system then? That's a... I don't know. So how do they how so. do they hook into that? Yeah, do, or maybe it has like an emulation layer where it emulates being that. I don't know. I didn't dig into it. I'm speculating. Hmm. I would assume they don't have to recompile too many though. They probably don't have that wide breadth of uh, yeah. things that need it. But. but you just have a compatibility layer that emulates it. So if it looks for this call, give this answer type thing. Maybe. I think everything would be a compatibility layer because probably none of them are built with it in yeah. mind. So. That's really interesting. I'd be interesting interesting to see how it's working or how they configured that. Speaking of older computers, how do you say that? Imam Buntus? Emma Buntus? Maybe. Emma Buntus? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It is a lightweight Debian-based distribution designed to run on older computers. This project has published a new update uh, to its DB9 stretch branch. So that's cool. And this comes up every now and then. The good and bad with old computers is, yes, you people get excited about repurposing them. The downside of some of these old computers is websites. Watching them, and I'm facing this with my Lenovo here. My Lenovo's you know, several years old, and it's an X250 with that i5-5500U. I think it's a processor in here. Watching it render some web pages or HD content, it pauses a little bit to render it. Really? No matter, and it's not, doesn't matter what distro I use, um, some content on this 1080 screen, it's just not as fast. If I have too many tabs open, it starts mm. choking. It's not out of memory, it's just all the CPU power. I'll watch the CPU be mm. pinned on it. Um, it's noticeable, like, uh, that I use a Reddit plugin, for example, that shows all the images. Yeah, it pauses to render that page versus, like, my faster computer renders it immediately. So even though you can put another distribution on there, you have to think about what you're using it for. And so right. it doesn't really make the computer, like, new. It still, so much of what we do is web-based now. And if you're, yep. a lot of web 
Base stuff has very complex HTML5. It's almost like its own, you know, operating system running within the browser. So if you don't have a fast enough processor, the distribution isn't the hang up like it used to be. Yeah, you're right. I think there is some value in the, you know, desktop environment not using a certain portion of the CPU, but it is, you're, you're right, it's like how much will that benefit you? If your desktop environment's using 10% of your CPU all the time at idle, we get maybe 7% right. of that back, which is probably good, but not going to make a huge difference. Right, so it's, it's, it's neat, and it's, uh, but it comes down to what websites you're going to and things like that, and some websites are just horrifically bad when it comes to, these. have too many elements going on um, that cause a computer to be really slow, and no, no distribution will fix that. It's a, it's a processor rendering problem. I think when these when this concept came out, we didn't have 4K or any of these other things back when people were making these lightweight distributions for yeah. old computers. We didn't have this really high end content. It didn't exist. So back then, it was probably like a like a miracle cure. Well, it is not today. Raspberry Pi. One of the solutions they have uh, with the Chromium browser. I think the default Raspbian comes with a plugin installed that limits it to 30 frames a second because if you try to play a 60 frames a second it'll start skipping frames to keep up like mm. a youtube video so they automatically limit it down to 30 frames a second it's a plugin that just says no no, no. i know you have a 61 available for me i don't want it because uh, it starts dropping frames hmm. so yes it can do 1080 but only at 30 and once you go to the 60 there's some it doesn't work right um what else we have here in distro watch i was gonna look i might look at netrunner at some point, I was, think, I was thinking about doing a video on it. I did a video on that one very early in its life, uh, many years ago, or at least several years ago. I didn't like it then. I, I just, I don't remember why, but I remember when I reviewed it, I just didn't like it at all. But it, it I mean, it's been a long time since then. So it might be fun to do a video on Netrunner just to kind of see what it's like today, because I know it's changed yeah. quite a bit uh, from its original release. It was based on Ubuntu, I think. Now it's Debian, so that alone is it just makes it completely different. So yeah, that might be a fun video. You see anything else, Tony? Nah, that was all I, I saw. All right, well we will then push on, over the distros and into the news. All right. <laughs> uh, who wants to start? If you want to start, Tom, I'm good with okay. that. We will just start with a piece of trivia. 28 years ago today, Linus posted that thread, what would you like to see most in Minix? Just just a hot, and I, I love this quote of it. This is just going to be a hobby. It won't be anything big and professional like GNU. And it's a link in the show notes to that original post. And I, I think we've brought it up like every year. It's just, you know, our annual thing as Linux people. This is the birth of our, <laughs> the birth right. of so many different things. So it's kind of fun to talk about. Uh, anyways. Let's talk about uh, Ubuntu 18.043 long-term support arrives with Linux kernel 5. So now we got the 5.0 kernel coming. And uh, yep. we've talked a little bit in the past about some of the new features, enhancements. I know there's a lot of Ryzen updates in there. Um, and there's uh, free sync support for gamers. Free sync support for gamers. So I'm happy to see that the 5.0 one is uh, coming right along. And even if you're on those long-term support kernels uh, or long-term support distro, you can that is still coming to you. I love, I love that they do that. I think, in my opinion, that's what truly sets Ubuntu apart from Debian. Because Debian, unless you um, add backports, which may or may not have newer kernels, probably won't have newer hardware driver stacks that they just grab that same base, but they make sure that your new computers will, will be supportive of new drivers. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. So they, they keep, you know, and that's especially uh, people moving to Ryzen. Uh, there's a lot more 
features being added to the newer kernel. So if you have a computer like I do, like a Ryzen computer, and you're still on a long-term support distro, those features are coming, which is wonderful. So this is a couple of announcements around Blender. So last, actually the last two SMLR episodes, we brought up Blender uh, and all the donations they've gotten, things like that. And then the other side of that. So Blender is just, as it keeps getting better and better, uh, it's still, like I said, a complicated learning curve. But if your living is making, uh, working for a Japanese animation studio, is it is it Kahara? Is that how you say that? Uh, they are moving to Blender, hmm. and which is pretty cool. And it's wild to watch someone who's really good at Blender and 3D modeling and creating things with it. But uh, they're now building all their uh, animations on it and everything else. And they, this is an article discussing of them doing it. Um, so this is the – they have a quote from the head designer. Simply, the project scale got bigger than what was possible with 3DS Max. Yeah, we couldn't pay all – you know, that closed source program just didn't have the power behind it that Blender does. And kind of related to that that I thought was interesting when I was researching and reading about that, there is a Netflix original movie um, that was all done on Blender. And it's a it's a cartoon. Uh, what is it called? The one with the rabbit? Yeah, the it's, or... yeah it's creation of Bowser's next-gen feature film. Uh, but it's 100% done in, well, they said 95% of the work was done in Blender. So there's a couple other pipeline asset management with a couple different other animation things they did. So it sounds like they use a couple or each of those, but 95% done with Blender. And it's a successful Netflix original. Um, so Oh, so it's not the one I was thinking of. I was thinking of the test video. That yeah, there's the, yeah no, no, this is actually something that made it to Netflix. Big Buck Bunny? That's yes, it. that's the one I was yeah. thinking of. That's That's been around forever. That's been around forever. And that's uh, they re- render new versions of it every now and then which is kind of cool but that's yeah. that's done in blender is uh well but this is actually something that made it to like commercial production and we're seeing this with other um in more and more of these companies are talking about open source has become part of their workflow uh even at larger studios so it's, i'm hoping caden live is the next you know someone throws a little money in there and you know gives us a little caden live love and uses a large-scale open source uh, on that, because I know there's other, there are some other editing tools out there, but they're not open source that do run on Linux that are, are used in Hollywood. But that's where people get mixed up. Well, they're using Linux in Hollywood. They actually are, but they're using like DaVinci is being used for a lot of documentaries. But DaVinci itself will run on Linux, but is not a open source program. Hmm. So there is a distinction there. Now, back to the final piece of Blender news, but it's actually Ryzen news is the new Epic processor benchmarks are posted over on Foronix. And, yeah, we're going to say that uh, it's really uh, epic, the performance they're getting out of these. It's They're living up to their namesake here. And they're, compa- they're, they're comparing them to a Xeon Platinum 8280. So this is a high-end uh, battle between big processors that are in data centers. And these Epic ones, and if you didn't hear, Google and Amazon are talking about putting Epic in their data centers. Um, so once the big guys announce it, the, all the smaller places will start doing it as well. So I'm pretty ex- excited about this. And they show it really, price performance is there, like big mm. time. It's not just faster than the, the Xeon, it's less expensive and faster. Uh, and less wattage and less heat. So there's like every, it's winning every category. So there's... Uh, this could be the fall of Intel, <laughs> or at least uh, Intel's lack of Intel's been complacent for too long, as I think a lot of people said. They just didn't yeah. have the competition, and once AMD released this new line, it's just it's it's doing everything it wants, and then combine that with some of the flaws people found in the Intel processors, Ghost, Spectre, Meltdown, uh, stuff going on. 
it's it's a perfect convergence in the market of Intel releasing very minor, incrementally better chips, and AMD going, why do these little things? Why not leapfrog this whole Moore's Law thing? Let's make a processor that uses less wattage, more cores, more efficient, and uh, it runs Linux really good. Back to that, why there's so much active development excitement about the 5.0 kernel. It's going to have all the extensions to support that make it better. But it's yeah, it's definitely awesome. A Raspberry Pi open source tablet in the making called Cutie Pie. This is, I like this. There's a, a video demo of it all, and it's a custom uh, CN3 carrier board designed for portable use with enhanced power management and a light uh, lithium ion battery for monitoring and everything. Like they built out a kit uh, that's going to be basically a Raspberry Pi tablet. I think this is awesome. I think this is just. Like they got the board specked out the way the Cutie Pie board works, and uh, everything about this is like really neat. It's going to uh, have an eight-inch IPS LCD display, which is a good thing for starters. However, you won't be getting an HD screen because the resolution is limited to twelve eighty by eight hundred officially, as far as what they're doing for these production specs. But it's a cute little like kit where you can get the Raspberry Pi board in and integrate it, so you'll have your own open source tablet to do things, which hopefully will drive more things like Ubuntu Touch, because there is always some challenges of uh, getting touchscreen functionality to work really well. Linux, it's just not, it's, there's not a people poking at it, so um, it's not as, probably not as well supported as maybe in other, uh, like Android, for example. But either way, it's all open source. Uh, the Cutie Pie source code and all the little customizations that they have are in there. Because it's going to have battery monitoring, like every little component, just like a normal tablet. So you're going to be able to get uh, a bunch of functionality. Looks like the officially expected launch to be around $150 to $250. It's still new, so they're still working out the pricing for it. But that's not a crazy amount for everything integrated with a screen and a tablet and touchscreen and open source mm -hmm. and lots of fun. So I'm excited about the product on there. Did you see that it's not a standard Raspberry Pi or even Raspberry Pi W? It's the compute module. Yeah, it's the uses. Raspberry Pi compute modules, yes. which uh, we've seen some people do some projects. They kind of look like a similar slot to a memory chip, mm -hmm. uh, like laptop memory. They snap in and snap down. Right. And what's nice about that, it's for projects exactly like this, mm -hmm. where you can build something, and then if you want to just upgrade the processing or whatever features, then you can swap out that board and you have a new... Of like base, you know, what yeah. processor on a chip or, uh, you know, and uh, I've seen uh, some TV manufacturers um, do similar things. Yeah, do something like that. No, it's a really, it's a really nice design to have that kind of modular. It's just really hard to standardize that interface because back in the day, we thought we'd do that with processors. You remember the slotted processors mm -hmm. Intel made? And then everyone realized you yep. needed more pipelines and lanes. Therefore, the new processors were didn't fit in there so the upgrade path of those crazy stupid slots wow, i remember those look looking like sega genesis cartridges they did yeah they were <laughs> they were a terrible idea they never mounted right they were just everything about them was a pain there was nothing good that came out of those yeah i remember though using them a few times where you go from the slot processor to the adapter with the socket processor oh yeah man i remember those two <laughs> slots yeah that's crazy yeah, it was it was messy. Seemed like a good idea at the time, it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It did. Um, Jay probably has some thoughts on this. At System76, uh, they have a new firmware manager for updating firmware across oh, yeah. Linux distributions. Did you see this? I did. I was actually, um, that's one of the items I was going to, um, to mention. And what I was going to mention, you know, I read the article. I think this is awesome. But what, what happened is on my ThinkPad, 
I just ran my updates as I normally do every other week or whatever, and then I reboot, start back up, and it tells me I have a firmware update, a Thunderbolt um, firmware update, like three different pieces of firmware. Mm. And it's not even a System76 laptop. It's a ThinkPad. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to see what happens. I back up my computer because, you know, it's the first time trying it out. And I do it, and it works fine. Like I update one, it reboots, comes back up, and then it's removed from the list, and the second item, then the third item. So three reboots later, had every firmware update on my uh, ThinkPad. What's interesting is it's using the it was using the ThinkPad um, BIOS flasher, so they didn't have their own BIOS flasher. But it was able to pull. It downloaded it, probably put it into some UEFI yep. place. So when the laptop rebooted, the the actual Lenovo. Um, update manager for the BIOS came up and then started flashing the computer and it was great. It worked wonderful. And in fact, I just updated the updates on this Galago that I have with me and I just remembered I haven't updated this one in probably more than a month. So the firmware updater was one of them. So I'm sure when I reboot this laptop, I'm going to get the exact same thing. It's going to tell me there's firmware. So um, I think this is great because I remember having to have a Windows partition back in the day in order to install firmware updates on a device. Yeah. Then that you know. was, um, Dell was like that for a while. Uh, when we have to take Dell servers, we have to take the server down, even though it's running Linux or even VMware. Um, you had to boot it up into Windows because some of the Dell, you had these stupid utilities on the RAID. This is, goes back a long time ago. Uh, but they had these RAID utilities. They could only run in Windows to update the RAID controller. They didn't have a way to do it for like a BIOS or even FreeDOS. It was some weird stuff. It's been a long time since I touched that, but it's still kind of a random problem where sometimes you can't update firmware without going back into because they have a windows utility for the firmware update um, and no way to do it so i love that they're working on this i love that they're doing it for not just them they're you know once yep. again they're contributing back upstream to the open source community going hey this is an open source firmware updater and another reason to love um pop os you know yeah. that this is all getting integrated hopefully other people will copy that repository and carry on the love here if i'm reading this right it, it looks to me like they want other distributions to pick it up and so it's not going to, hopefully not going to be specific to them, whether other distros do or don't. It'd be great if we're running whatever, insert name of distribution here, and we get the same experience. We just get the firmware updates like we would and um, on Pop! OS. So hopefully that happens. But I think it's great that they're doing this. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Uh, back to another epic article, Linux 5.3 kernel yielding the best performance yet for AMD Epic Roam CPU performance. So uh, if you go to the Bleeding Edge kernel, still in development, not released, but they are seeing even more gains. So in the 5.3 kernel, so the same benchmarks, all they did was swap the kernel and it's just yeah, as they get these fine-tuned for AMDs, this is just getting more and more exciting. I'll leave a link that goes into all the details of every benchmark that Pharonix ran on it, but um, they ran and it's it's impressive, just every little piece. It's like everything got that a little bit faster. We know that you can get a lot of the tuning, but when you're doing new processors, there's probably a lot of gains because first, okay, we're going to start with standard x86, you know, x64, IA64, or not IA, um, AMD64 extensions, and then we start fine-tuning the features of the Epic and fine-tuning the kernel, so it's going to be exciting. You're going to get the get the processor, which is a big upgrade, and it's going to keep getting better. That's what I'm hoping happens with my 3900X. It's kind of funny. My son the other day was, he's just been using the word epic a lot. And he's like, I'm going to make this word like catch on a lot because I'm going to keep <laughs> using it. And now we're talking about epic processors. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that later. AMD is certainly doing that. It's epic. So I think this is probably a direct um, competitor because of RISC-V. But IBM open sources its workhorse power chip architecture. Uh 
this is kind of interesting because IBM's on a whole, you know, open source role. They buy an open source company and instead of closed sourcing it and destroying it like everyone predicted. I mean, they bought Red Hat a minute ago. Um, they're still alive. And to quote one of the, I think it was the IBM executive, he said it in a press interview, something along the lines of, are you going to do this and this? And he goes, he goes, I don't hate myself and I'm not ready for, like, we're not changing everything. I don't want to self-destruct here, guys. He was being kind of joking about it. Go, no, no, we're, we said we're leaving Red Hat independent. Thus far, skeptical caution, you know, I'm not saying they're, I I'm, I'm, have faith in IBM, but I am saying it's interesting that they have now dropped uh, a lot more open source, including open sourcing their chips. Now, I think it's just to be a competitor with the RISC-V, like I said, but it's still interesting because these are, um, you know, anything you're adding more to there. They've, uh, they've also recently open sourced some of their Kubernetes stuff. They've dumped a lot more. Uh, they open sourced some of their um uh, genomics stuff for cancer fighting. Uh, we mm -hmm. had that in the last episode. So, like, IBM's actually been in an open source role, which is interesting because they're a company that actually makes a lot of their money from patents. That's actually their uh, their big bottom line where it comes in. So, eh, they may be changing, but it's still cool that they have it in there. Well, that was the bottom of my news articles. Um, that's a interesting list, though, on there. That's IBM. Hmm. Big blue. International bio <laughs> right. machine. Yeah, mm. international bio machine. There we go. <laughs> I'm cautiously optimistic. Maybe they changed. They're not the same people running it. There's there's also gender because you, you say, well, they did this. Look at Microsoft. Microsoft is truly a different company. There's not all good with Microsoft. I know it's all not sunshine and roses, um, but they are dramatically different than when, you know, Bill was running it. It's yeah, not the ecosystem's so much different they have to change to adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Satendel is doing things very differently than his predecessors. And Balmer, man, that guy, he was like the hardcore cutthroat 80s into the 90s business guy. Wow, yeah. He, totally. he was unpleasant the way he handled developers, things. Developers, developers, developers. Yeah. Now they're open source, open source, open source. Right. <laughs> so what do you got, Jay? So I have a, a few quick things here and then um, a sad story I'll get to in a moment, but... Fedora is switching to the BFQ I.O. scheduler for better responsiveness and throughput. It's been a very long time since I converted the scheduler to BFQ like I did on um, earlier installations of Linux. And I'm pretty sure I remember pretty decent speed gains from that. So this stems from um, Systemd. They were thinking about making that the default. But then they kind of backtracked on that and they said, well, we'll just leave that up to being a downstream decision. But Fedora, they kind of thought, well, you know, it's probably worth doing. And according to this Veronix article, it looks like uh, Fedora 31 is going to be the one that will use BFQ by default. So nice. I, I'm interested to see if that will make it seem faster because Fedora always seems slow to me. I don't know why. Um, you know, if I, if I have the same, you know, a comparable version of Ubuntu compared to Fedora, and I'm not doing benchmarks here, it's just kind of like how it feels, just Fedora feels sluggish with the same kernel and the same, you know, version of GNOME as a comparable Ubuntu release. Ubuntu just seems like it's snappier to me personally. I haven't but used it, Fedora in a long time. I don't mean against it. Uh, yeah. People ask me about it every now and I'm like, I just, I, I once I switched away from Red Hat forever ago, I've never dove back into it. It's a decent distribution for sure. Um, it's I, not my cup of tea, but a, a lot of people love it. Yeah. So hopefully this will, for those that love it, they'll give them a little well, speed boost. And XCPNG is based on CentOS. So, you know, that's I, I run some of the commands. You yum update um, XCPNG, so. Right. 
And then another article I found, I'm not going to get too much into detail here, but this is probably good for those of you out there that are wanting to follow ZFS and its integration in Ubuntu because it just kind of seems to um, become more and more of a prominent thing. Um, from this article, which is titled um, Enhancing Our ZFS Support on Ubuntu 19.10, An Introduction, um, basically, they're talking about the direction that they're going, and what I gleaned from this article is that it's not quite ready for root. I mean, it's experimental, and you can yeah. do it, but I think there's some stepping stones that they have to get through to be, like, 100% confident with it. I don't know if that means 2004 will, they'll feel like it's it's ready for prime time or not, but 1910 will be a stepping stone in whatever direction they're going here. Yeah. So there's all these licensing questions and things I won't get into, but this article will have some additional information on where this currently stands and where they want to go with it. So if you're at all curious, this might be something you'll want to read. Yeah, and ZFS works on, uh, that's one of the integrations that came in XCPNG, so they've incorporated it all into CentOS. I don't know how they're dealing with the license stuff. It's uh, I deal with enough confusing things and to try and read legal terms. Right. Yeah, that's for the lawyers to sort out. True. Right. It is true, yeah. So You know, one of these times maybe we'll have someone reach out to us uh, that I, I remember there's an interview with, and if you type in open source lawyer, there are some lawyers that I think it was on the Twit network, uh, one of the podcasts, they interviewed one of them, and there's just so much to it. There's like, there's people that just, yeah, there's kernel developers and there's licensed developers. I'd like to <laughs> hear a roundtable with um, developers from several distributions that have taken different stances on ZFS to talk about why yeah, they it would be decided for or against implementing this. Um, I think it would be fun to find out their uh, reasons. Yeah, for sure. ZFS um, is coming. I can yes, see it, it be uh, useful in troubleshooting stuff. I'm not sure if I'd be ready to run ZFS as my file system on something like my desktop or something like that but um for troubleshooting like if your system dies you need to be able to just plug plug a zfs raid or array in to pull data off of it i can see how that can be handy yeah and you can do that today which is which is great um i don't know i'd almost wonder if like the butterfs fiasco where like that was like the um golden child of file systems for Linux. Like, this is the up-and-coming thing. Everybody's really excited about it. It's got all these great features. It's kind of like the Linux equivalent of ZFS, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of had all these stability problems that kind of gave it a really bad reputation. And some distributions still ship with it by default, but it kind of just seems like, well, ZFS is tried and true. It's been enterprise-proven for a very long time. That's the thing. It's it's hard to compete you know? with them. Uh, I heard a number, and I, got, I think Michael Lucas said it, that they're cumulatively is over a billion dollars of research that has gone into ZFS. Just that many people are using it, and it's, better. And it's also its longevity. It's been around that long and been developed that long. Um, they're slow to make changes, uh, they're, but they care about stability. And when you talk about the enterprise market, ZFS is everywhere in the enterprise market because you're going, yeah. this stuff just works. We're not worried about it. We don't. It's it's got all the redundancies we want. It already has the facilities to add the different caching drives in there. So, it's it's a hard one to compete with. It's one of those ain't broke, don't fix it. It's open right. source. I can get it for free. Um, so there's not like the market push to get developers on board for something else. It's hard. That's true. I was really hoping for ButterFS, but I don't really see that in the news very often mm -mm. as as much as I used to. So. 
I hope it becomes a thing and gets completely stable and gives us something of our own. It um, seems but to I just don't a lot see better. it happening. I'm, I'm a staring across Tony because I see two Synologies. I'm 99% sure Synology uses ButterFS in the back end. And hmm. uh, there's a lot of different companies that integrate it. So through these some of these somewhat proprietary companies like Synology, they do um, – use it so it is in use out there and so those companies are helping push it forward and my understanding is uh, and it's hard to shake when you release anything unstable it's hard to shake that off to say no no we're stable now but i remember it been 1989 i had a seagate hard drive failure so i'm never buying a seagate again yeah that was 30 years ago <laughs> right. yeah i know it's been a long time since i bought seagate man that one failure man it left it left a bad taste in my that, mouth. that was me <laughs> in regards to radeon video cards like i i, yeah. I had really bad experiences with them multiple times i'm like i'm never touching this again and people kept telling me you got to try it you got to try it it's great on linux now promise it's been I, 10 years jay it's okay i finally <laughs> do it i know i finally do it and yeah they're right it's great it's it's like awesome yeah. it just works really well it's that's a really tricky part about really any technicians uh or anything technically released because technicians are really we're finicky and if it burned us once we have there's so many things we're doing all the time. Um, you know, you just want to stay away from anything that burns you once. Like I can't do that one again. They had this. Mm. They had this thing they did, and I'm I'm upset with them. Yeah, but it was a long time ago, Tom. I know, but it's hard. We hold grudges. So I almost <laughs> wonder if the right solution for ButterFS would be to kind of like call it Alpha, change the name to something completely unrelated, yeah. to, so people don't you can't connect believe it's the not ButterFS. <laughs> 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 there we go. Yeah. Okay, that was the best. Uh, Why didn't we have that as a show title? You cannot believe it's not ButterFS. <laughs> wow, that's the best pun I've I've heard yet. Great. Um, so uh, yeah, there's that. So hopefully we'll hopefully see how it. this plays out. Fair um, enough. Next up, enhanced live patch desktop integration available with Ubuntu 18.04.3. Mm. Um, now this isn't necessarily new because um, this has been around for a while, but I do remember trying out Ubuntu 18.04 on a desktop, not 0.3, could have been 0.2, 0.1, but it didn't let me set up live patch. And I didn't even get a chance to look into why. I don't know if maybe they were holding on to it before they're making it generally available or there was something. Well, was at one time it was like enterprise support only. So if you're paying for support, then they'll let you have it. And the same thing for right. um, for Fedora or, or Red Hat is if you you have to pay for the support to get it. Well, what I, with Ubuntu, you get three, I believe, computers free, no matter what. Oh. So um, and that's well, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up, because a lot of people don't know that. So if you have, you know, let's so, just say, I'm sorry, go ahead. So uh, well, the, the, you would have to be registered for that then, right? Yeah, you just you have a, a Launchpad account, so you have an email and a password, yeah. but you don't have to have a credit card attached to it okay. at all. Um, I don't. I don't have a credit card attached to mine. And the way I look at it, I have a few servers that are very important, um, under three. So I just make sure they have live patch and I don't pay anything for that. And that's the main reason why I wanted to bring it up is a lot of people don't know this. It's so easy to set up. You don't have to have a credit card, email, password, just set up mm. an account. And if you have one or two servers, why not just turn it on? Um, yeah. And that's existed for, you know, before 1804. 1804 released with one of the noteworthy features saying that this is actually included in the GUI for um, 1804's desktop. So if you have a desktop and you don't like rebooting, I hate rebooting, then this could probably help you mm -hmm. try to achieve, you know, le less likely scenario of having to reboot. So, and it's free if, if you may as well do it. Yeah. So 
now here they're saying that it's basically basically been enhanced and the article will be in the show notes so they've made some changes here so i know for sure as of 1804.3 lts you should be able to turn this on and it's right in the gui because on before it was just all commands which is fine as servers so you're, you're used to that kind of thing and you could probably do it on ubuntu desktop before by using the same commands but they built it into the actual gui and there's notifications now, which I think might be what's enhanced, because I don't remember seeing this icon that they show in the article. It um, looks strangely similar to a Microsoft icon I've seen in the past, because um, it looks like a little shield with oh, a green yeah. check mark on it. But you could configure it there, which means the average user will be able to, to do that. And then it's part of the, if I remember correctly, the Ubuntu Advantage program. So if you want more than three, then that's when you start you know, pulling out your credit card and um, get your systems enrolled into that. I don't know if it's still three today, but last I looked into it, you got three for free. So if you cool. have, um, for example, a VPS and you have a desktop or laptop, then there you go. You're covered. Nice. Yeah. Um, also, XFCE 4.14 officially released. At one point, I actually thought the XFCE project was dead, which was totally not the case. Because Mate, when that hit the scene and exploded, I thought that it served the purpose XFCE mainly was created for a lighter weight desktop, but actually I find XFCE is a little bit lighter weight, a little bit faster than Mate is. And 4.14, I mean, this release is noteworthy even though it's just a point release because they don't release very often, and you never know when they're going to do it. They'll tell you, you know, we'll have this out in two years, it could be four. <laughs> I mean, the histor historically, you just never know when it's going to happen. So 4.14 is out, which means they've converted, I believe, every core component to GTK3 finally. And this is something they've been doing for a long time, and they finally got there. Their uh, window manager supports VSync, so it works better with high DPI displays. There's additional options, uh, nothing like truly groundbreaking, but if you're an XFCE fan already or you just want something lightweight, um, you're going to definitely benefit because while there's no major new features, there's a bunch of good smaller features that will make it a really good uh, experience. Like they have Do Not Disturb mode built in. So that's not a plug-in like it is with GNOME. It's actually part of the desktop environment. If you're using their image viewer you, and you're viewing a picture, you can set it as a wallpaper right there, which I guess I'm kind of surprised you weren't able to do that before. So, um, yeah, if you're an XFCE fan, then you'll probably look forward to this and all the October releases of distributions that are coming. We'll um, have this by default, so that's awesome. And then finally, the sad story I mentioned Goodbye, Linux Journal. So Linux Journal is one of those things that I feel like I should have appreciated more when it was alive. I subscribed about a year ago, finally, and it's existed for a long time. One of the things I liked about it, some of the how-tos and articles that they had were just not found anywhere else. So I, I have, like, the, I think it's the most recent one that they did right before they closed down. And for those of you that don't know, it's kind of like a Linux magazine. It's just delivered in a PDF form. Most recent version had an awesome OpenStack article. I'm getting back into mm. OpenStack um, because I'm a sucker for punishment, I guess. But I, I do find it fun. <laughs> and their article for how to get started in OpenStack, how to set it up, was uh, really good. And not something that I've seen in other blogs. Or, or They had really good content that was theirs. So, yeah, according to the article, which will be in the show notes, it's an opensource.com article. Um, they've been in existence from 1994 to 2019. They did have a 
period of time where they closed down, but then they later came back. So this is the second time that they're closing down, but yeah, it's sounding like it's, it's final this time. Really hard to monetize any type of news content. You know, even us, we we do this out of the kindness of our hearts and random donations people send us, but um, to try to do this as a living is not easy in any way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally true. So um, we just like getting around talking about Linux. We spend we spend the first. 30 minutes off topic before we can start the podcast because we're just talking about <laughs> projects. So I almost <laughs> wonder, I mean, <clears throat> part of the, the subscription, I, I got an archive of every issue of Linux Journal. Mm-hmm. I have in my possession, I think, pretty much every single issue that I've ever done. And it's kind of interesting because they give it to you in, the, in a um, archive. You extract it. You double-click on a, it's like a HTML file. Opens your browser, and then you get a little menu of all the issues from the past. It's pretty cool. I almost wonder if, like, some if it's I don't know if it's legal to do this or someone can, but just host this somewhere so um, people can just go and view these. I know that you we have to reach out to them, and find out what their policy is. Yeah, and even if not us, maybe someone else or maybe someone can work out a deal with them just to kind of preserve these because you know yeah. I have them, but that doesn't benefit anyone else if they're just on my hard drive. And I'm sure other subscribers, a bunch of them, also got the same benefit and they also have the same archive. Yeah, I mean, I'll reach out. I don't mind. I'll kick in some money for hosting and yeah. host it on one of my servers. So I'd love to. And it's super easy because the HTML file is right there. So yeah. you just drop it in and then I have point your DNS record. And, yeah. Um, it might be a great resource. So um, if anyone from the Linux Journal is a, a fan of ours, then write us. Yeah. Let us know if this is okay for us maybe to do Maybe I'll this reach and... out and find someone from the Linux Journal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'd be so. great. Cool. So that's all I had. Cool. I've got a couple things. Um, so this article actually I put together a couple weeks ago, um, and then we missed our record date. So, uh, I'm bringing it up now. Uh, so, well, the, there's a vulnerability in the D-Link router, you know, and what is it now? You know, at one point. Yeah. What's the score now? (laughs) Right. So this one specifically the DIR 600M and, uh, what it allows you to do is connect to the WAN.htm, uh, connection like from the internet oh and then once you can connect to that then it's uh, you can get information off of the router and figure out things and then even pivot through to do something else so the dir in the model name stand for yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> and well that's what i'm thinking that for years d-link has always had problems yeah, i remember two years ago on my phone reading through uh, articles that went back years saying that d-links had problems well you know the, the um, Federal Trade Commission versus D-Link. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know why the Federal Trade Commission was after them? Mm-hmm. For using the word security in their name. It was kind of a way to go after them because they said basically they said the company put basically no effort towards security. <laughs> right. So, wow. Or, so maybe they, or they were claiming that link. they were a Yeah, secure... it's a direct link to the internet. <laughs> right. They're claiming that they're a secure system and they weren't or no, something like that. They simply couldn't and, substantiate that. So it was a false right. advertising claim, which I think is a hysterical way to go after them. Yeah. <laughs> totally is. It's public endangerment from false advertising. <laughs> yeah. So, well, what's interesting now is even script kiddies can get in on the act. Yeah. Because there's a Metasploit uh, oh, boy. Uh, for this now. Metasploit module. <sighs> uh, yeah. So. That's going to be fun. Uh, yeah. Update your routers. And that's why yep. everybody should just get rid of those and use PFSense. I, as I say, for, for $169. I mean, it's not an, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not cheap. It's not free. Um, but, wow, that's not an expensive price to pay for a tiny little box to protect your network at right. home. You know, if you're, well, it doesn't even have to be $160. I mean, I, I'm running on an old PC. Yeah. It's, 
I think the PC is almost 10 years old now. It's a du- Core 2 Duo. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can and definitely do that. Yep. You can, with uh, a $10 network card and a $25 computer, mm-hmm. you can run PSense on it. Yep. And that's your Absolutely. firewall. You can go find some computer that was ready for the recycle bin. Um, and this is a good use case for using old computers because they mm-hmm. will route traffic. Um, they don't need a UI. They're not trying to render the web page. They're just passing the data. You can route traffic on an old Atom you know, yep. slow processor, uh, quite relatively fast speeds. Yeah. Yeah, the gigabit card, preferably Intel, mm-hmm. they're fine. Yeah. I mean, Two even mine, possibly. mine's, like I said, it's 10 years old, Core 2 Duo. Yeah. And I can route 800 meg a second. So. Exactly. Yeah. So. You probably, uh, probably get even more than that, I would think. As yeah, for, I'm as sure it will be more. Yeah. But someone can route your traffic somewhere else at a, at right. a surprisingly fast space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next article I have is uh, from Bleeping Computers, and they uh, they say hackers want two point five million dollars in ransom for yes. the Texas ransomware attacks. Twenty two Texas cities hit with ransomware. Yeah. So that was interesting. You think are the hackers that coordinated? Nope. We dug deeper. Uh, we actually covered this and how they got hacked. We dive a little bit into this topic because we, as I learned, mm. one MSP. They have one common IT provider that was cracked. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah, one MSP, so the the bad actors uh, got in on the MSP. Then whenever that people using that MSP pushed out a, a patch update to yep. their their systems. <laughs> they patched it with crypto lockers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know what's interesting? The, the department for uh, in Texas, you know mm-hmm. what that's called? Hmm. The DIR. Oh, boy. Department of Information Resources. I just... Yeah. I thought that was funny, you know, DIR, you know, Directory. Windows DIR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's another mess, and uh, it's one of the problems that we've seen a lot of these companies, uh, they're sales heavy, they're quick, they're able to land 22 cities, and uh, that's great for them, probably their bottom line, but then they didn't spend time on security. Uh, every time we've seen these breaches, when it's happened more and more frequently with the MSPs, the IT contractors, um, they just reuse the same password on another website. They... Um, don't have multi-factor authentication turned on, and these powerful these tools like we use, like Solar Winds, allows me to send. If I wanted to send ten thousand computers the same command, I can script that through Solar Winds, no problem. Um, yeah. So it obviously makes ransomware easy to deploy to twenty-two cities. The part that's not in the news is if this MSP did something other than cities, because you don't get you don't find out how many small businesses were ruined by this. So we only know about the twenty two cities because there's an insurance claim. But mm-hmm. any other companies that this IT provider, which we don't have a list of their clients or a privately held company, um, all those clients are probably hit too. Wow. So yeah. it's a mess all the way around. All right. The last one I have is another security related. This one's from Krebs on security. That there's a supermarket chain in Iowa called Hy-Vee. And uh, at first I thought Hy-Vee, that sounds like a computer term, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's a supermarket chain. And then actually a bunch of uh, restaurants are also uh, affected by this, but they had five, over 5 million credit cards stolen. Wow. Oh, wow. So if you shopped at Hy-Vee or Market, Market Grill, Grill or, or Wahlburger, yeah then you might want to be careful. So Wahlburgers isn't just in in Iowa, right? Yeah, There's one here we, in we Taylor, here. right mm-hmm. by us. And Yep. We have a few of them here. There's in Detroit, Taylor. They've opened up mm-hmm. a handful of locations now. Yeah. So it's uh, you want to start watching your 
identity stuff, credit card statements. You know, and computer security, all important. We need to move to a different methodology by which we take cards. Uh, one of the ways I avoid this myself is we use Stripe. So I only have the tokens, um, so mm-hmm. I can't. I don't handle the credit card information. You have to. You have to think about it differently. And too many of these companies are a combination of uh, lacks on security with also um, the fact that there's they're a big target, so they're always being attacked because they have all this data in the way they do. It, right. It, you just got to handle it differently. That's. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's what. And I for a long time I was hesitant on it, but the the tap and go pay things because it's tokenized yeah exactly. it's it's much more secure because it's all one-time uh use tokens uh, done that i mm-hmm. pay a lot of things with my phone now i integrated the credit card on my phone i can do the tap and pay um i i feel better because if i use tap and pay my credit card was not stored by them right it was a one-time token authenticated by there so uh that methodology just is hugely better mm-hmm. that's um and it makes me feel more secure because it's more likely that that a, a store you go to is going to be a te- is targeted for stealing this kind of information than somebody trying to swipe your phone. Yeah, well, and even my phone, I have to un- you have to unlock my phone. Mm-hmm. I keep a password on it. You have to go to the app, and obviously, my phone was I have um, bookmarked uh, the remote wipe. If I lose my phone, I remotely wipe it. Yeah. So that's just part of my procedure if I were to lose it. So. Yeah, that's that's important. Um, right. You would have to have the password. I may worry that you're going to guess away at it until you find it. So if you get it online at all, I'm going to have it, it's going to remote wipe if you get it online. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're not likely. And if you can't get it online, you're also not using my tap to pay because it requires you to be online. So full circle here. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if someone's going through the trouble of really trying to do that, they're probably a three layer agency, and I have bigger problems than remote wipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, well, that's... That's uh, the end of the news. That's what I had, yeah. Fun stuff, fun stuff. Well, seeing nothing else, if you want to reach out to us, it's show at smlr.us. We forgot to mention that at listener mm-hmm. feedback, so hopefully you're still listening and didn't drop off there. <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, we're always, if you have comments, concerns, questions, things you want to answer on the show, uh, let us know. And if you are someone, we have a couple people who want to mail things to us. We still host this at my office, lawrencesystems.com, and our address is on there if you ever want to send something uh, to us. So that's about it. All right. Thank you for listening to Episode 313. We're up in Detroit here. So Episode 313, Detroit Linux. This is Tom Lawrence. Tony Bemis. And Jay LaCroix. And thank you. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y.